Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Market Show. I am John Human, editor of the Investors Chronicle. We're joined today by Sex Editor Harriet Russell. How are you doing, Harriet? Yeah, good, thanks, John. Excellent. And uh, Megan Boxall, our pharmaceutical specialist. How are you doing? I'm, I'm good, thanks, John. How good. Are you? And I'm all right. I'm all right. Um, you've been the cover feature this week, which uh, we're going to talk about. It is about bad lifestyles and good drugs for solving them. And uh, for me, it's shopping list of all the things <laughs> I'm going to need in the future when my journalistic lifestyle leads me to ruin. Catches <laughs> up with you, I think, is what Absolutely. you're looking for there. So it's uh, it's been an exciting week on the political front, as per usual. Uh, we won't spend too much time talking about that today because it doesn't really have a lot to do with the markets. Uh, but we've had some interesting news from the the uh, retail sector. So should we start with that, Harriet? Sure, yeah. it's uh, It's been a busy week for grocers in particular. Yeah, they're looking all right, aren't they? Um, well, I mean, sort of all right. Sort of all right. I think what's, um, what's most encouraging is the signs that a lot of them are really trying to learn lessons from the last recession, which is basically not trying to beat the discounters at their own game and just sort of enter into yet another price war. They really can't afford to do that this time around, of course, because we have cost inflation, which was not really the same situation in 2008. Okay, so we had uh, an update from Sainsbury, which was a tip. It was a tip of the year last year. 2016 tip of the year. Yes, and uh, and we did stick with it for quite some time. Um, It's actually 13% to the good on that one. But I did downgrade it this week after results came out yesterday. Yeah, because the shares fell a little bit on the sort of headline profit number, which you will have seen one widely reported in mm. the in the more, more uh, non-specialist media but but actually the the underlying figures were okay. The underlying figures was only, uh, profits were only down 1% but the big sort of extrapolation that we're encouraging readers to do is to understand that an awful lot of the gains were driven by Argos not by Sainsbury's core business which is the point that analysts are really worried about. <laughs> yeah and, Ar- and Argos is an interesting one because that deal was announced essentially days after we we <laughs> I think put it was the tip 3 the, weeks. Was yeah. it 3 weeks? Yeah. Um, and it, and it really knocked the shares at the time, I think there was yeah. a lot of scepticism towards the strategic rationale of that deal and whether they would be able to actually integrate it effectively. But they do seem to have done so. And in fact, it does look like a sensible deal now, if that is what is saving profits. Yeah, I think the analysts are still a little sceptical about exactly what the cross-sell opportunity is. This is something that Sainsbury's at the time were really advocating that it would drive footfall to stores and then the cross-sell would be automatic from there on out. And if you're comparing the growth rates at Argos and the growth rates at Sainsbury's, that doesn't really seem to be happening just yet. Argos is still really trading on their click and collect, which is obviously their core business model, but it's not translating into then encouraging people to go and do their weekly food shop in Sainsbury's whilst whilst collecting items at Argos. No, they do feel, as a shopper, and we do buy our groceries from, from Sainsbury's and others, which is the modern trend, of course, mm-hmm. but largely from Sainsbury's through their online service. And we don't hear much about Argos through Sainsbury's. Um, we don't go into the shop, so we don't see anything if they are doing anything. And they do feel, when you walk past uh, an Argos on the high street, like very, very much like separate businesses still. Yeah, I mean, they are definitely integrating. There was a big move over the last year or so to move more Argos points into Sainsbury's Superstores, and that will continue. That has that's still fairly embryonic, and the management are still insisting that that is where the cross sell will come from. But at the moment, people are kind of splitting it into a fifty fifty business, which is that not dissimilar to what happened when Argos was, of course, part of Home Retail Group and had to be sort of compared to Homebase all the time as well. And it's it's sort of starting to do the same at the moment, although admittedly there's some way to go with it, which is Argos good and Sainsbury's bad. The great historical irony being that Sainsbury's used their own home base. Yes, exactly. All full circle. Indeed. We also had figures from Morrison. 
Today, yeah, Morrison's which were okay. They were good. They were very good. Better um, than okay. Yeah, better than okay, I would say. Uh, like for likes up 3.4%, excluding fuel, uh, which is much better than Sainsbury's, which is still in negative territory on an annual basis. So, But Morrison is much more of a recovery story. than much, Sainsbury's, Sainsbury's totally was always the different. steady ship yes. in the grocery sector. You know, if you rewind to when we were doing Sainsbury's as a tip of the year, the reason that we didn't get into Morrison's or Tesco was that you were going to take an awful big bet on a margin recovery there. It was a margin-based recovery story. And the ratings that those stocks were demanding in order to bet on that were extremely high. And we just thought the risk was, was too great. If they didn't manage to pull it off, then those shares would have really suffered. Whereas Sainsbury's, by comparison at the time, was a lot more better value on a PE ratio basis. It was about 13. And the margins were fairly steady. They didn't really fluctuate. We didn't have the cost inflation that we've seen in recent months. But at the time, we sort of saw it as a much more sort of slow and steady play that was able to really do well in middle market, which is so difficult. Mm. Management has obviously been a key part of Morrison's recovery and also Tesco's. So, mm-hmm. we, we, you know, we're actually seeing the, the, the effect of those those hires coming through. Mm-hmm. So it actually goes to show that management choices are often important. Yeah, I, I've said all along, actually, over the last 12 months that Mike Coop doesn't get nearly as much credit, but that's because he doesn't have nearly as gla- glamorous a story to tell, I don't think. They got arrested, didn't, or they threatened to arrest him in Egypt. They did, they did threaten to arrest him <laughs> That's the most glamorous thing that's yeah. ever happened to uh, Yeah, I think uh, he's wanting to gloss over that part. But, um, <laughs> but you know, Dave Lewis, Tesco, ex-Unilever, he's pretty much had all the headlines. Big fight with... Uh... With his uh, former employers. Indeed, Great. indeed. Lovely story. Lovely PR victory. And David Potts doesn't get nearly as much credit over at Morrison's, but uh, but I have a lot of time for him as well. Okay, the other supermarket news this week, it's not a supermarket in the same sense that, that Morrison, Sainsbury's and Tesco are, obviously Marks Spencer's, mm. rumours floating around that they're going uh, online with their food offer and that Ocado could potentially be supporting that. Yeah, yeah. Um... <laughs> Basically, Ocado neither want to confirm nor deny, and nor do M&S. We are in a general election yes. mode at the moment. Um, all, <laughs> it's in the manifesto. I, I hate to sort of draw premature conclusions. All I will say is that a not dissimilar story uh, broke around Ocado and Amazon about a year ago, and Ocado had a very similar share spike to what happened at the beginning of this week. They didn't address it via RNS. The rules on that are kind of fuzzy, I know, because I called the FCA and asked at the time whether Ocado should have addressed that share spike. And basically, if they consider it material, then they really should. They obviously haven't in was this it? case. Eight nine percent was it? This week was eight or nine percent. I think with the Amazon um, rumor, it was it was much more than that. It was about twenty. They haven't addressed it. All I will say is that Ocado desperately needs a new deal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's no secret. And if they could get one with M&S, it, it would support those shares massively in the near term. Whether they've just sort of put this out there to float an idea or, or, or try and get the rumour mill grinding, who, who knows? But all I will say is that the Amazon and Ocado story came to nothing. What is the story of M&S then? Is that, is that, is that more concrete? Well, the M&S story, I think... It's an interesting one to put it in in terms of food because, of course, when we talk about M&S at the moment, which is a live buy tip for us, we're talking about a big recovery in general merchandise. We're almost ignoring food because it is fairly stable. It's done well, but it isn't online. And the reason I don't think that they need to go online is because people don't do weekly shops at M&S. Well, this is what I was saying earlier. We do our weekly shop with Sainsbury's online. 
And then we pop into M&S up the road for bits yeah. and bobs. Bits and bobs. They they have a great presence in travel outlets, railway stations, bus stations, all of that sort of thing, airports. And it's because people pick stuff up on the go, sort of five items, ten items. They're not doing weekly shops where the whole online thing where it's getting it delivered to your house so you don't have to carry it is a massive boon. I just don't think that applies to M&S. And I don't think they need to do it. Their like-for-likes are in positive territory. They're doing well. They're opening new sites. They need to focus a lot more on, on how to get general merchandise turned around. But there's been a big management appointment there this week as well. Uh, Jill McDonald, who is currently the chief executive at Halfords, she hasn't been in that post particularly long, 18 months maybe. Um, she's going to move over to M&S and head up general merchandise for them. And how is the general merchandise recovery going? It's, well, it's going to be long term. That's the thing. And difficult. And difficult. And the backdrop is not easy. The backdrop is not easy at all. The reason that I'm bullish on those shares, honestly, is because M&S is a real cash cow when you get into the detail and uh, and the yield on those shares is is pretty good so you know not dissimilar to other retail stocks in 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 the current sort of environment a lot of them are yielding quite high because the share price performances have been poor so a lot of them we're looking at and thinking could these be short-term income plays while you're sort of in the background betting on a longer term recovery because mm, we had some pretty pretty horrible news from next today which would fall into that category yeah May well, may well. Mm, well, we'll watch this space. Okay, let's turn to some pharmaceutical news before we move on to the main event, which was your piece, a review, essentially, of how the big pharma players are doing at the moment, which are also very important income shares for a lot of our listeners and readers. Megan, what's the story? All of the UK's big three have had Q1s within the last sort of 10 days. It's really interesting about big pharma in the UK is that all three have taken such different approaches to the challenges. And, um, yeah, what we've written about this week is how Shire, at the moment, is coming out on top. Its Q1s were really good. Um, They beat consensus analyst expectations and they are integrating that massive deal that's Baxalta acquisition that they made this time last year that it went through. And they're paying down their debt very quickly. So it is looking good for Shire at the moment. AstraZeneca is not doing so well, uh, which was expected. And this is, this is to do with drugs becoming essentially reaching the end of their patent-protected life. Yeah, so both Astra and GSK have had some big, big drugs that have lost um, lost protection in the last few years. Um, AstraZeneca lost its biggest ever selling one last year, um, it's a statin called Cresta, and it's just dragged down their earnings so much. But neither company has really been able to plug the gap in sales yet. GSK has been doing it with its toothpaste and its paracetamol, but not the same as it used to. It's not, there hasn't had any big brand drugs launched for a long time. Mm. I mean, Astra, I mean, the, the, the difference you, you mentioned is Astra is going down the development routes mm. very, very strongly. GSK, as you, as you allude to, is becoming more of a consumer, or trying to become more of a consumer goods company. Well, pretending it's not, but... I'm pretending yeah. it's not. But the Astra pipeline was, was so promising, and this was what gave the shares a lot of support mm. uh, in recent years, What's happening? Why is, why is, it's it, why is still it not coming to fruition? So promising, but yeah, like you say, it's taken a long time, and it, they've got that. It's cost them so much. They're spending so much more than any pharmaceutical company in the world, pretty much, on this pipeline, which is massive, and the potential is huge. the The big one that everyone's talking about is a trial called Mystic. It's testing two cancer drugs in combination with each other they're immunotherapy so they use the body's immune system to try and fight the cancer and they're really exciting because if they do get the go-ahead from the fda should be the next few months the trial concludes they'll be the first um, combination immunotherapy on the market and the, the market's massive and they can pretty much charge what they want for them which from an ethical point of view maybe isn't great but for astra it's it's awesome. They're going to make a lot of money if this drug does get the green light. But there are really 
big risks. The main one being that a very similar drug from um, Bristol-Myers Squibb in the US failed its final stage clinical trial, which sent investors a little bit crazy. Astra's share price collapsed based on the fact that people were worried the same thing was going to happen to them. But so half of that trial has had good results within the last week. It's been approved. It will it will, it will be accelerated to um, to the shelves. But the, it's the combination which is the big one for the company. Okay, I, I see you mentioned Merck in your piece mm. as well, which is our international tip of the year. Yeah, how's that one going? Well, Merck's great. Merck has Merck has really got its spending and pipeline just right. It's um, developed this drug. It's taken a very different approach to most pharmaceutical companies in its drug development. So rather than go for big populations, which was the historical way of doing it, they've gone for very, very specific populations and they're only trialling their drugs in um, in really specific areas of the cancer population. So it's a it's a marker called PDL one which is exhibited on some cancer cells. And they actually test their patients before they start the drug trial to see whether they exhibit these PDL one markers, and then if they do, then they're allowed on the trial. Isn't that cheating? <laughs> well, it, um, <laughs> yeah, they they know who the drug's going to work for, so yeah, they only allow the ones that's get. So it, it, it's quite sensible. This has like a while back. I remember there was a lot of uh, hype around targeted medicine. Yeah, that's and exactly. This what sounds it is. like it, this is what it is. Yeah, um, well, Merck is the only company that's really, really doing this targeted. This is for you. So obviously when. If it's only trialed in PDL one patients, it's only approved for PDL one patients, which is really cutting down their patient sizes. But but that can still in itself be a very large market. It's still a huge market. I mean, the m- amount of people that have lung cancer is just incredible. But um, yeah, and they're making so much money five hundred eighty four million dollars in the first quarter of this year um, from one drug. It, it's 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 big numbers for a drug that's only recently been approved. And that's, ha- that's having a really strong if- impact on uh, on its its figures, its profits. Yes, it is, and they um, they've accelerated their expectations for the year based on these Q1s. They, they're doing really well and they are the pharmaceutical company globally to beat in terms of the pipeline at the moment. And it does make them a little bit more expensive than others, but it's justified the way they're going about their drug development. How's the share price doing? Most yeah, importantly very, of all. Very well. Good, <laughs> good. Um, and have we changed our views on any, any of the British uh, pharma companies? Um, not recently. Um, Shire Astra, we, we like. They're, they're both buy tips based on the fact that they're so undervalued. Their pipeline just isn't taken into account at all in the valuation. Um, and both have huge pipelines. GSK, I mean, it's fine, but it's not exciting. It's, it's generating a bit of income. You might as well hold it. Um, if and you actually, hold it. yeah, and that's the thing. Um, for a while, we did think sell GSK based on the fact that its income did look under threat because its cash flow was was not very good, and its cash flow has recovered. So, I it, it is there is a worthwhile holding there now, but. In terms of growth, I just don't think it's going to be nearly as impressive as the either of the other two, even though the risks are higher. Okay, we we'll, uh, let's let's take a little detour to results, so we don't continue to talk. Uh, so we'll have a little break from pharma, <laughs> break for, from pharma. for a couple of minutes. Pharma um, can be a bit much sometimes. It, it, it's mind blowing stuff, really. <laughs> so let's talk about some of the uh, results you wrote up this week, or some of the news stories, some of the uh, tip updates. Um, N Brown is always one that catches my eye. Mm-hmm. We we've got this on a sale. Yeah, we do. I I. It's it's difficult because actually I have a lot of time for the chief executive. She's she seems fairly sensible, fairly aware of what's going on, um, and really putting her best foot forward in terms of trying to turn that business around. Um, there are two kind of big things that stick out for me on the bear case. There, one is a lot of their businesses is credit, and I think you 
allude to this in your editorial this week about how credit businesses, you know, although we're at a peak in the cycle, perhaps in terms of credit availability right now, we've seen this at Next as well, their, their credit business has really started to shrink. It's a fairly sort of outdated model. To shrink in respect of them making a deliberate, a concerted attempt to shrink the credit side of the business or shrinking because no. people aren't buying? Yeah, or... people just aren't buying in that kind of way anymore. Um, the churn, particularly customer churn in that part of the business for Next was really bad, although um, it has shown start, signs of, of stabilisation of late. But N. Brown also have these historical redress complaints going on mm-hmm. with the FCA. It's all been sort of um, self-motivated. The FCA did not investigate them. They came forward to the FCA and said, we found this, we need to start making provisions. Those provisions have escalated. They've really gone up. Are we, see- are we seeing any customers uh, defaulting on their uh, Well, their that's accounts? the thing. It, it's not really a bad debt provision at mm-hmm. this point. It's just provisions in, in, relate- in relation to money they may have to pay out over historical complaints, not dissimilar to PPI complaints. So it's at the moment it's not bad debt, but it could be. It could be. And I, if you sort of move into a more operational point on M Brown as well, the actual product they're selling, we had a big discussion about this, me and the management at the time of, of the results. Um, a lot of their brands are things like plus size or, or big and tall and, and these sort of Uh, names and labels that I think are becoming more and more outdated concepts in retail. They sort of have this rather passe kind of association. And to be fair to her, Angela Spindler did did sort of cop to that. And she said, yeah, we don't talk to our customers in that kind of language. This is just the language we use around sort of corporate releases so that everyone knows what we're talking about. But I definitely got a sense that that there might be a concern there that those sorts of labels are are just not very modern. Yes, but they are not really going after the young shopper. I mean, these the, the whole beauty of M Brown. Certainly, when I used to cover the sector and, and tipped it quite successfully uh, mm. many years ago, was that it was targeting an audience which were um, slightly more affluent, an affluent older audience. Um, again to the specialist audiences they the kind of plus size audiences it, it, it seemed to protect them for a while is that not the case anymore at the moment i think the narrative in retail is much more around inclusiveness rather than exclusivity um, sometimes exclusivity is good it works well for luxury retailers it works well for premium retailers but i think for someone who's essentially mass market if we're talking about quality if we're talking about price point the whole sort of then sectioning people off um, into certain labels or certain categories feels feels slightly outdated to me I, I think they're, they're also going to struggle if, if you look at brands like Simply B for example that brand in terms of the actual product to my mind my friend actually models for them so I know um, come, it come, it, it's getting younger and younger the models they use are younger and younger and it, so they really are trying to go after a younger market and whilst I can understand why, they, why they're doing that they obviously want to increase their pool I'm not sure an 18 year old wants to necessarily admit to being having you know shopping in plus size or whatever I just don't think it translates for for young modern consumers no no maybe so maybe a bit of a sort of audience segmentation issue going yeah. on there. I must admit we I don't I, I must I haven't bought anything from N Brown uh, but we do get an N Brown catalog mm-hmm. for one of the brands which I think is called Premier Man uh, okay. we do it we, we get it to buy some clothes for my father-in-law oh yeah okay. uh, who's in, uh, in in a care home at the moment but I have had a flick through the catalog and I I, I you know I look at it and think, well well, another, right, but, but and all the models look a bit like me, you know, okay, sort of young, well, youngish looking, oh, well, young, youngish <laughs> looking, youngish. Why is everyone not shopping there? Youngish looking, but very grey. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, Giacomo is one of their brands, and I'm pretty sure that Freddie Flintoff is the face of Giacomo. Yeah, that might help. Um, it might help, but again, you can see they're trying to go after this like trendier 
good-looking younger customers and it's I just don't know how concepts like over 50 or plus size actually resonate when you're trying to do that mm. everyone's trying to update their concept and make it relevant that is the challenge in retail and I'm I'm just not sure if M Brown's going to be able to pull it off no maybe not I mean we were talking earlier about JD Sports yeah which is one of my favorites <laughs> uh, favorites as an investment yes or as a shopper uh, as, a, as an investment I I don't shop at JD Sports that's not to say that what they sell is is um, is bad it obviously has huge resonance you have much more of a personal touch with this through my, your children my kids go mad for JD Sports yeah Just I mean I'm, t- I'm too old for JD Sports that's the problem <laughs> <laughs> I'm too old for it but I can understand exactly exactly what they've got right there um, streetwear is a massive trend in clothing retail at the moment and that is essentially what they do you don't always think of um, JD Sports as, as being a fashion brand but it actually is. It's it's, oh, not, it's absolutely fashion. It's not, it's a, not a sports. It's brand. not a sports brand. I, I exactly. Don't, I don't think my girls have actually done any sport outside of what they have to do. Actually, no, they've given up sports school as well. They do dance instead. <laughs> well, there you go. So, uh, so yeah. no, yeah, they are they are a sports wear up to the max. But uh, but it's streetwear. They, they will never run. They don't run. No. <laughs> <laughs> they're buying it for labels. They're buying it for brands. They're buying it for all these collaborations. You've got obviously people like Kanye West collaborate with Adidas. You've got Rihanna and Puma, um, and they sell all of that stuff. And it resonates with teenagers like you would not believe and I had a very illuminating discussion with the chief financial officer at the time of their results a week or so ago it should have been last week's issue who basically said you know we're talking a lot about cost inflation would they be passing that on to the customers via price rises and he said yeah you know we we have had to increase the price of goods but they've been doing that for years anyway and he said it doesn't matter these young people are obsessed with how they look they're obsessed with brands they're obsessed with how they're perceived by their peers and they will pay. Oh, when it comes to when it comes to trainers, my kids are price blind. And yeah. I, you know, I think, oh, they're nice, and I pick them up. And it's like hundred and ten pounds oh, for yeah. a pair of trainers. The, they're, they're not even the most expensive. The ones. Rihanna ones, I think, were one hundred and twenty when I looked. Jeez. And I think the Yeezy. But what's the point? I mean, they're not <laughs> functional as trainers, are no, but, they? No, but that's the point. They're fashion. It's status. It's it's what message it sends. But you can to buy the peers. same ones from Primark for a tenner. But you're Just they're not the, the same, Megan. Mm, yes, Megan. <laughs> Megan. They're not the same. <laughs> The twins will uh, tell you they're not the absolutely, same. Absolutely, absolutely. And you're you're a sports person. I am. So, I don't so go to you, you look at this yeah. in a different way. I do. I, yeah, I'm I'm not one for JD Sports. Sports Direct, on the other hand, I'm a fan. Oh dear. <laughs> <laughs> All right, enough about retail. I see you've uh, you've been scribbling there on the ITV piece. I think it's really interesting. It is interesting. I'm glad you think that because I think it's very interesting. And I know you didn't write it, but it is one of your your companies. Yeah, and I you, did, yeah. And you know the, the ITV story. I mean, should be people. It's Adam Crozier mm-hmm. who's been a very successful chief exec at ITV, and he's he's leaving. Yeah. Are we should we be, should we be worried? Well, I don't know. I mean, it's that's why it's so interesting. The fact that he stepped down, and it's not a shock. Um, I mean, it was a few months ago, but um, media was speculating about the fact that ITV had hired recruiters. So they have been looking for a replacement. But the thing that's interesting is that they haven't found a replacement. They've put the FD and the chairman are going to sort of be sharing the role. And that is really interesting from the point of view that ITV has been a takeover target for quite a long time. If they're not looking for a CEO, it may be because in six months time, there isn't going to be a CEO position at ITV if it's part of a larger US company. So why would they recruit a CEO if if they're looking to be bought? I always thought that Crozier's appointment at ITV was was partly driven by a longer term plan to get the business in shape and sell it mm-hmm. because that's what he's 
partly known for. At, yeah. Um, so yeah, has he done? Has he done the groundwork? Well, and... that's the thing. I mean, ITV has done very well. The share price hasn't done fantastically, especially last year. It's recovering a bit now. But, but it's in much better shape. It's than it was. really. It's, it owns so many production studios. And I mean, a lot. Of, there's a lot of things on the BBC that you think they're BBC programmed, right. and they're owned by ITV production <laughs> really? studios. Yeah. Oh my they, they own so many production companies, and they're good quality production companies. They are making a lot of a lot more programs across lots of UK channels um, and they're a much more decent company than they used to be and I, I do really like them but yeah I think it's interesting that they are a big takeover target especially with all the consolidation that's happening in the in the media the telecoms the broadcasting space they're all merging and something we were talking about earlier um, and Liberty Global is actually also in discussions with um, with Vodafone, Liberty Global is the company that it actually owns about 10% of ITV already. And it's the company that analysts are saying might swoop in and buy ITV. But yeah, it's also discussing whether it um, whether it might merge with Vodafone. I mean, ITV and Vodafone don't seem like similar companies. That, that sounds like investment banker talk to me. Because I, I, I don't get how that It is work. investment banker talk for sure. But, and it... They're not going to happen at the same time. But the fact that there, there is one company, which uh, Liberty Global owns Virgin Media, amongst other things. But the fact that this one company has one arm reaching towards Vodafone and one arm reaching towards ITV, it, it's just showing what's happening in the in the broadcasting and telecom space at the moment. They are all coming together. The content means so much, which is why ITV positions itself so well. It's got content because it's got all these production studios. It's in good shape and I think it is an interesting takeover target, especially now it doesn't have a CEO. Uh, and we have the shares on a buy. We do. Which yeah. we have for a while. Uh, yeah, since about December. Okay. Yeah, no, no, no it's fascinating. fascinating. Mm, yeah. I wonder what Crozier will do next. An amazing what? TV. Yeah. Okay, shall we uh, talk about the cover feature? We should. So it's uh, it's called Medicines for the Modern World, and it, it is about illnesses, diseases that are essentially caused by lifestyles that are perhaps not always healthy, not necessarily always because of through the fault of the people who suffer them. But the world is a is a is a kind of different place than it was when human beings first came to exist oh. and this is causing sorts of all sorts of problems yeah it is and actually what's interesting about that is like you say i mean actually a lot of the problems that people have with their health are not anything that they can really change if you live in a city you're more likely to have lung problems that's not something you're going to change because you want to live in a city but you're breathing you could move bad to the air country. you could move to the country it's a lifestyle <laughs> choice <laughs> but it's not something that you want to do if you want to work in london which a lot of people do i did but then I do have to commute for nearly two hours every day, there and back. Four which may add day. to the stress. It which, does uh, add to stress, that's, which, um, that's true. So anyway, not necessarily lifestyle choices yeah. uh, in the sense that you can't control the pollution in the city. Yeah, exactly. And so, yeah, the thing that I find so interesting about this topic is that one of our main problems as humans is that we are not well adapted to our current lifestyle. We have the same genetics that we had when we were roaming the earth as deer hunters and berry pickers. And now we are sitting behind a desk all day and we are eating our chips which are on the cover of this magazine and we're it's my dinner last night <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even joking <laughs> yeah which is, is why we have we have all these problems and the problems so they are uh, lung cancer or breathing related problems cardiovascular problems yeah because you mentioned that I mean obviously smoking related lung cancer is, is, is the commonest cause of lung cancer um, or is it yeah, well, it is quite difficult to tell. There are two categories of lung cancer. One is non-small cell lung cancer. That is the bigger category. And that there are many, many causes. Most deaths, most lung cancer deaths are in smokers. <laughs> I mean, it's a, it is a fact. However many people say that you don't necessarily get lung cancer. Yeah, no, you might not get lung cancer if you're a smoker. But equally, you might get lung cancer if you're yeah, not a smoker. Yeah. But there is one type of lung cancer. It's called small cell lung cancer, which is 
almost exclusively caused by smoking. There have been, I think you can count on your hands the number of cases that have been caused, which have been found in people who don't smoke. And it's a much more aggressive form of cancer because it spreads really, really quickly. With small cells, they just they spread more quickly than mm-hmm. the than the other type of lung cancer. Um, but because it is a smaller patient population than the broader caused by anything lung cancer, there has been very little progression. I mean, as we were saying earlier, it might change. It might change. <laughs> As we were saying earlier, these big pharma companies, lung cancer is the big thing that they're trying to cure because the population sizes are massive. And the pro- how much progress has been made by Merck and by Bristol-Myers-Squibb and now by AstraZeneca is very, very exciting. But these drugs are being approved for non-lung, non-small cell lung cancer sufferers. Mm. Um, but good results in, in that kind of lung cancer can mean good things for the small cell lung cancer sufferers as well. Um, and these... Drugs are trying to be approved um, in the, for those patients as well. Right, and so that lifestyle really choice is being is being targeted. <laughs> it is. It's being targeted by a lot of companies as well. And you list, I mean, you list a lot of companies who are looking into these these areas. Um, another another lifestyle choice uh, is it a lifestyle choice is eating badly. Mm. Um, this is also uh, a very very prominent cause of things like uh, well diabetes, mm-hmm. uh, which which is a potentially a knock on effect of obesity. Mm-hmm. Um, general poor diet so so talk, tell us about that who's, who's looking at that yeah so what i would say is the most interesting part of this um section of the um feature is the stuff on on the microbiome which is a really specific area of the pharmaceutical space there's a company in the uk called optobiotics which is a very interesting it's a tiny company a bit but controversial as well it is quite a controversial company <laughs> as a company it's not my favorite in the world but as an idea i think it's very exciting what they're doing what they've what, what optobiotics has done is they've extracted some of the bacteria from our digestive system and they have managed to sort of make them make them help us and they found that these bacteria um ingested can help lower cholesterol and they've got clinical trials which have proven that what they're what optobiotics is doing is actually putting them into food supplements um, they're not going down the drugs route which they're doing for a, from a financial point of view it's a, it's a completely different area of medicine it's actually using live bacteria rather than chemistry which is what pharmaceutical companies historically did for treating cholesterol problems which was statins, statins yeah. yes um which are the biggest selling drugs of all time but yeah this new this new situation is actually correcting what we have made what what has gone wrong in our bodies using natural remedies which mm. does seem more sensible statins are they're not a very they're they're extraordinarily highly prescribed doctors don't really like statins very much do they do they have side effects then they do have side effects, but the main thing is that people are lazy. If you if you've got high cholesterol and the doctors say pop a statin, that'll sort it out. People are not going to go out for walks like they should be doing to lower their high cholesterol because their statins are sorting it out. But but I think we can assume that people aren't in in the main going to change their lifestyles. No, there may be some if some people may choose to to get fit and run around for yeah. a bit until they do their knees. Or so people will take drugs if mm-hmm. it's a shortcut. Yeah, People that's like true. Those shortcuts. Yeah, that's true. And so the ne- the new shortcut for getting rid of your high cholesterol. So statins kind of going out of fashion. So the problem with statins is that they are too good at what they do. So they are as good as it can be at getting rid of your cholesterol. So AstraZeneca and Pfizer, they've had the two biggest selling statins of all time. They've made massive, massive amounts of money from these drugs. But now those drugs have lost patent protection. But that doesn't mean those drugs are no longer sold. They're still being produced in massive quantities. They're still and they're produced- cheaper. And now they are cheap, yeah, because they've lost their patent protection. AstraZeneca and Pfizer, they need to launch a new thing, something that they say is better. And finding that thing that's better is quite difficult. There is something, they're called P450 
PCSK9 inhibitors. Of course. Catchy name. It always is in pharma. (laughs) And they are very similar to statins. They work in a very similar way, but they are said to have a better safety profile. And there's lots of companies, particularly in America, um, who which are developing these drugs. The problem is they have to be better than statins. Otherwise, no one's going to prescribe them. So there are a few that are already launched and they're not being prescribed for in very high doses, in very high quantities at the moment, because why would you? What, what these drugs companies are doing at the moment is they're trialing them in patients who've already had a heart attack or some kind of coronary event. And they're trying to assess whether taking these drugs lowers the chances of having a second heart attack. And if they do, then they'll probably be prescribed because you're taking massive costs out of the system if you're going to stop someone having a second heart attack. Absolutely. Then, yeah, then they probably will start making massive money for their their owners. But at the moment, they're just going to keep providing these age-old statins, which are doing the job just fine. Okay. Um, there's lots more in the feature. We won't we won't talk through it all now. Mm-hmm. You talk about some of the lots of res- respiratory illnesses and mm-hmm. who's addressing those allergies. Allergies, of course, are another another sort of mm-hmm. modern problem. Yeah. Weird that, isn't it? It they, is weird. Yeah, and it, this is very interesting. Yeah, talk about this. I like this. Okay, so they don't really know what causes allergies, but it's yeah, it's not very clear. But they do know that our when I say they, it's scientists. They they know that our very early ancestors didn't really have hay fever and things like that, but our earliest ancestors were alive at the same time as Neanderthals. And they think that a little bit of interspecies breathing between the Neanderthals and the early humans may have caused us to develop the genes for allergic reactions, such as hay fever. So, so it's what you're saying. is The more Neanderthal that you are, <laughs> the more likely you are to get an allergy. And there is the argument as well that if you don't give your kid peanuts when they're a baby then they're going to develop a peanut allergy when they're older that's where the lifestyle thing comes into it you can make yourself allergic to things um which is um why it falls into this feature but yeah there's there's hope for allergy sufferers yet um we talk about that in the feature as well well i know and what i'm allergic drug to problems exercise <laughs> oh dear give me the short john this feature was for you wasn't it it was uh, it's great it's a shopping list of my uh, of my dosage at least you're forewarned about thank you your... yes yeah, it's, it's terrifying i i'm gonna start running <laughs> yeah Harry, why are you shaking your head at me now no i just i like that's that's where we ended that's where we wrapped up um yeah lots of magazines this week we've got a uh, john barron's uh, latest portfolio update uh, lots of personal finance fun section which they will talk about tomorrow lots of tip updates lots of results this week all the usual comments uh, lots more news that we haven't discussed. Uh, and uh, yes, there you go. Medicines for the modern world. If you're as unhealthy as me, it's probably worth a read. £4.90 in all good news agents or get online and subscribe. Thank you, Harriet. Thank you, Megan. And uh, we'll be back again next week. Goodbye. <laughs>